Show your patriotism with a flag from the United States Flag Service. They offer premium, high-quality flags that are made in the USA. Whether it's the grand old flag, your favorite military flag, or a historical flag, celebrate your freedom with the flag from the United States Flag Service. Go to usflagservice.com. That's usflagservice.com to see their selection of available flags. And then call 1-800-USA-FLAG to purchase your flag today. USA Flag Service. Fly your flag for freedom. Now, the Jen Charlton Show on 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Telling it like it is with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's great to have you here with us. And today is a continuation of really dealing with the concerns globally that are emanating from Israel and the Palestinian Gaza Strip. So I reached out to somebody today who's an expert in so many things, and he contributes to many of the top news stations. So he'll be with us in just a minute. What's going on in Israel? And as as we are progressing, I said last week, you know, my concern is this is going to escalate way out of control. And we, I think, are on the precipice of that. And I have with me today Nick Giordano, who is a professor and an expert on many domestic and international policies. And uh, Nick's uh, living actually in the New York area, and he hosts the podcast PAS Report. And he's an activist in higher education. He has decades of teaching experience and also worked in emergency management and homeland security, which unfortunately may be knocking at our door very soon with the infiltration of illegals coming in, many of whom are military grade and military ready embedded in our society here and you know it could be a flashpoint like just one thing could tip things very wrong so good morning nick and welcome to the jen charlton show it's a pleasure to have you here thank you for having me jen so where do we begin? My, my. When I saw your emergency <laughs> management, you know, I used to work for human services here in Maryland, and we covered emergency management. So I've done some of the training and things and very familiar with that important work. Um, so let's start with Israel, because we've been covering that pretty heavily. And I was just listening to um, another station. And, you know, when you look at that Hezbollah issue with Iran, that seems to be heating up and if they start to come in and Yemen gets involved we now have a 360 situation with Israel right smack in the middle so I'd love to get your play and your thoughts on on all of that and where you think we're going well I mean when we look at the situation in the Middle East obviously it does have the potential to expand much wider than people are even discussing today one of the concerns I have is how it's being it's not being played upright in the media. They're not discussing it right. And what I mean by that is you have this terrorist organization, Hamas, and they conduct an extraordinarily sophisticated operation where they come in through the air, through power, uh, power through gliders. They come in through the sea on boats and they do a land invasion almost killing, you know, somewhat 1300 people, 32 Americans taking 200 hostage 
And you look at that, and there had to be months of planning and training for this exercise. This is not something that you can just pull off with the snap of the fingers. You have to prepare for this type of invasion. That's what it was. Now, the only ones with the capability to actually train for an operation like this is the Quds Force of Iran. And we don't have hardcore evidence connecting this attack to the Quds Force in Iran, but I do suspect that we will be seeing some going forward. Now, Hamas is not a dumb organization. I know we're not allowed to say terror organizations are smart, um, but they do know how to operate. And Hamas knows that the Israeli response was going to be huge. They, they know that it wasn't just going to be a response where Israel was going to lob in a few missiles and then call it a day. So the question is, what do they have planned? What does Hamas? They had almost a year to prepare for an Israeli invasion. What's going to happen as Israeli soldiers begin to to go into northern Gaza? And that's one of my concerns, because obviously there's going to be booby traps all over the place. You can have IEDs everywhere. And what awaits them? Then you have the Hezbollah front. Now, keep in mind, most of Israel's forces are now on North Gaza, right there. I think it's something about 300,000 troops are amassed there. Well, that leaves the northern border vulnerable. And Israel openly admitted that it is vulnerable. And Hezbollah is a far more sophisticated organization than Hamas is. They have far more capabilities. They are battle-hardened. Hezbollah soldiers have been fighting in Syria for the last decade. So they understand the rules of warfare. They have over 150,000 rockets and missiles. They have over 100,000 Hezbollah soldiers, where if you look at Hamas, it's only about 25,000. And so are we beginning to see a new front open up in the north? And that's obviously backed by Iran as well. Then you take a look in Syria. Okay, a lot of people aren't talking about uh, Israel bombing the Aleppo airport, where Syrian arms, uh, Iranian arms were coming through the Aleppo airport. Now, Israel has done that before. And they did it throughout the last decade, a couple of bombings on the Aleppo airport, because that's where the Iranian arms flow through. Assad couldn't respond because Assad was mired in the civil war. However, his power is now relatively stable. He essentially won the civil war. It's not that it's over, but he essentially won. And so are we seeing a new front opening up within Syria and the Golan Heights in Israel? And you have that concern. And then you have the Iranian proxies. We just saw uh, over the last couple of days the Houthi rebels down in Yemen firing off missiles to get to Israel. Now, these missiles have to travel a good distance. So this is a new capability that's been added. Our destroyers were able to intercept those missiles, so that's something that's good. But what happens if we see more? So you look at that and you see the chaos. It's like a powder keg ready to explode. The United States has dispatched three carrier groups to this region. A carrier group includes an aircraft carrier, two to three strike vessels, two to three naval destroyers, and they could even include attack submarines. So obviously, behind the scenes, we're extraordinarily concerned that it is going to metastasize. So if, if you look at what's going on, it seems this thing is headed for an Israeli-Iranian engagement. That, that's where I think it is going. And Iran's battle plan is relatively simple. I mean, not only are they going to strike at Israel, but they also are going to strike at our military facilities and our interests in the Middle East. So this is something that we have to pay attention to. Like, there, there, it wasn't by accident that this month we intercepted four Iranians on a watch list coming through the southern border. 
It's not a coincidence that that coincides exactly with the Hamas attacks. So there's something much larger at play. And the reason that this is all happening is because of the increasing instability in the international community. The United States has been losing power and influence. I believe Afghanistan and our withdrawal, the way we withdrew, not saying that we should have stayed there, but the fact that when we were withdrawing, the Taliban took over the country within a week, and we had to get permission from the Taliban to get our troops out. It, it speaks volumes. It shows weakness. So our leadership is gone. There is no American leadership. And so it creates an unstable environment. You see Russia involved in Ukraine. You see China threatening Taiwan and the Pacific. And now you're seeing the flashpoint in the Middle East. Okay. And this, if it does expand, it has the potential. All these conflicts itself can merge into one. And that's a global world war. So, Correct. So let's see if we can break it down in, I don't know, the next 40 minutes. Oh, my. So... The first thing I get out of everything you just said is that there's a coordinated effort. Now, one of the things I've learned through this process is that the Sunnis and the Shias don't necessarily like each other. However, that is correct. It sounds like they're starting to figure it out and work together and they're coordinating their efforts for, to your point, a greater long game that we don't know yet. Does that sound accurate? Well, we have to distinguish between Sunni terror organizations and Sunni governments because they are two different things. Saudi Arabia and Iran are never going to team up in any type of alliance. The UAE, Kuwait, you're not going to see them team up with Iran. They actually look at Iran as a much bigger threat than Israel. But understand that these Saudi governments, uh, these Arab governments, they do have to walk a fine line, right? Uh, When you look at politics, it's two-level game theory. You have to try and satisfy a domestic audience as well as an international audience. And it's not easy to do in this region of the world. So take King Abdullah of Jordan. King Abdullah of Jordan scrapped a meeting with President Biden. A lot of Americans were upset about this, saying, hey, we give Jordan a billion dollars a year in economic activity. However, King Abdullah of Jordan has been a great American ally. He does what we need him to do in this region. And if King Abdullah makes the wrong move, he could be overthrown within his own government. And what comes in next is going to be far worse. So King Abdullah has to satisfy his domestic audience, the Arab world, but he also has to satisfy the United States. And behind the scenes, we are working closely with some of our Arab partners. The interesting thing is Iran definitely conducted this, and I do believe it was Iran. Again, I think more evidence will emerge of that. They wanted to destroy the Abraham Accords. They saw that the Middle East was changing. They saw Sunni governments making deals with Israel. The biggest one is Saudi Arabia because of the Saudi royal family, where their bloodline ties into the Prophet Muhammad, and that gives them the right to rule the kingdom. But Saudi Arabia also, the the crown prince is the one that dictates how Islam is taught in this region, what the clerics are going to be teaching. And so the he could issue, hey, stop going after Israel, and he has. So if we look at the last several years, the crown parents, Mohammed bin Salman, has ordered the, the clerics to stop targeting Israel and focus more on Iran. He wants to try and open up Saudi Arabia as a tourist destination that people would want to come to for all over the world. And so what Iran did was he struck a dagger through any possibility of Saudi Arabia and Israel making a peace agreement. And unfortunately, as of right now, it looks like that that was successful.
Okay, so what I hear is holy war. Interesting, uh, again, I'm not educated on these things as you are, so it's really fascinating to talk to you because you're so deep in this this stuff. But when I when I started delving a bit, so there's two things that happened in my journey. One, I started to put together the Abraham Accords and what that is. I didn't get it. And there's a pastor, and I, I'm going to play it. I'll, I, I'll try and uh, get that audio for next week, who does a fabulous breakdown of uh, the the two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and how they spread out into the Judeo-Christian versus the Muslim bloodlines. And I never got it that the Abraham Accord was, was fashioned after that. So it's really interesting where we are because these we really are striking at the heart of a holy war. And not us, they have brought this to the fore. And I don't know that any of us can predict. I mean, this is really in my world and in my faith, it's in God's hands. I mean, I don't think there's a lot we can do to stop the stupidity of Joe Biden, for example. Uh, I think that that's that's written in stone. Um, I don't think there's much we can do to stop um, certain actors in the Democrat Party who have and frankly, on, and I want to talk, we're going to segue to U.S. Uh, universities in a minute. But when you see the people supporting Palestine for the actions they took against Israel, it's stunning. But there's some backlash, right? So there's some backlash. So let's go ahead and segue to that. When you look at, um, and I actually what I think we should do is to go ahead and we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about how the university uproar has really uh, shifted from this deep Democrat, progressive, liberal, uh, pro-Palestine mentality that rose up and the backlash from the Jewish donors and the Jewish faculty and the Jewish students who said, you all have really crossed a line. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Jen Charlton Show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Sweeties on the Creek. We're scooping now and U.S. Flag Service. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I have with me today Nick Giordano. And Nick is a professor and uh, steeped in domestic and international politics and so forth. Uh, Nick, let's talk about your work as a professor and what you're seeing either on your campus or beyond where this this uprising is occurring and really conflict between the Muslim community and the Muslim supporters and the uh, Israeli community, the Jewish community and their supporters in in academia. What's what's going on? Well, this is something I've been wondering about for years. Uh, we've seen a fundamental collapse of our education system, K through 12, filtering into higher education, where it's moved. And basically, uh, education has been re- replaced by indoctrination. You have a far leftist movement that has gone on for the last two decades. So the way I explain it, when I went to college, it's always been left. And I had communist professors, but there was a difference. They were actually really nice. They love the debate. They love dialogue. They have an appreciation for education, and they push students to always ask questions, even though some of them were avowed Marxists. 
they appreciated the diversity of viewpoints. As those older faculty members began to resign, the baby boom generation began to retire in the early 2000s, we started to see that the new faculty members coming in were ideological zealots. They didn't have necessarily the training and the expertise that previous professors had in the subject material. And I find it really interesting because they actually went through more schooling than most of the previous professors, but they didn't have an appreciation for education. They they came in with the mindset, I went to undergrad, I, I, I went to grad school, I got my PhD, and so therefore, I'm right, you're wrong, nobody could question me, nobody could push back against me in the classroom, you're just a bunch of peasant students, and so I'm just going to dictate what you should believe, whereas the Socratic method has been destroyed within our education system. This has led to a bunch of spoiled, entitled students that are driven by emotion. And we see that with these protests, the anti-Israel protests. I mean, look at what they're condoning. They're condoning Hamas. And this is a terror organization that slaughtered innocent civilians. Again, 32 Americans were killed in the Hamas terror attacks. And yet, they can't even muster up a simple condemnation of Hamas. I mean, you could still be sympathetic to Palestinians and condemn Hamas, and yet they won't even muster up a simple condemnation. In fact, some groups are actually using the paraglider as a symbol, and it's highly disturbing. But it's not surprising. A lot of people are shocked at what's going on. I'm not, because I've been witnessing it on the front line, seeing this anti-Israel, but more importantly, an anti-American sentiment be driven into the education system, and that's why you have all these protests going on. You have students that don't really have background knowledge. I mean, if we go back 10,000 years of recorded history, there's always been conflict in this region. The the name of, of the place that we're talking about was Canaan, then it was Israel and Judea, then it was Palestine. And most people don't know that Jews were referred to as Palestinians up until the early 20th century. That's when that changed. So it really is interesting to see this dynamic and the pushback, because there are a lot of Americans that are upset at what they're seeing on college campuses. But what surprises me is, why didn't you get this mad when it was anti-American sentiment that constantly gets pushed? You know, it it took this as a catalyst, and I'm glad to see that we're finally, there may be some accountability within the education system. A lot of donors are pulling their their donations to these Ivy League institutions. You have companies that are saying, hey, we're not going to be hiring from certain schools now because we see it. I mean, listen. And they should not be receiving government funding, period. They shouldn't be receiving our tax dollars in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, well, if it's a private university, they certainly shouldn't be receiving public funding, considering the millions upon millions of dollars that they have in their endowments. If it's a public university, well, then it's funded by the taxpayers regardless. But what is this funding going to? And I think we need to explore that, because the only way to change behavior is to create a financial sense of pain to to these institutions. But it's not just at the higher education level. We also see it through the K-12 through level as well. I mean, student proficiencies are at their all-time low. They're not really learning. And we've been pretending that we have a good education system, but we don't. Students don't know basic facts. They don't know basic information. And if they don't know basic information and facts, if they're not educated, if they're not taught to think critically, well, then it's easier to indoctrinate them by the time they get to the college level. 
So this filters all the way down to the earliest grade levels. So I mean, there was just a story about Baltimore City and how much money they got, and their math scores were atrocious. I think it said no one child reached you know the levels. Uh, I'm trying to find it now, but the point is it's so bad in Baltimore, and we're sending all this money to Baltimore, and you know we're getting zero return on investment as taxpayers. And we're ending up with this. And when we come back, I want to explore this further with you about education, because in my world, Nick, education is not in the Constitution. So should it even be dealt with at the federal level? And all these push downs from the Fed down to the states and mandating all these things that are indoctrinating our children. You're listening to the Jen Charlton Show. And I have with me today, Nick Giordano. We'll be right back. Free Talk, 930 WFMD. Welcome back. I have with me today Nick Giordano. And Nick, it's just great to talk to you and get your perspective. And education is so important to us. I found the story. It's 23 Baltimore schools have zero students proficient in math. State test results reveal. That's that's shocking. (laughs) It's not only shocking, it's disgraceful. You're talking about a Baltimore school system that spends $22,000 per student per year, yet 40% of the schools can't produce a single student that is proficient in mathematics. And it's not just Baltimore. This is all over the country. I mean, if we look at New York City, we spend $38,000 per student per year. New York State, $26,000 per student per year. In New York, we perform twice below the national average when it comes to proficiency levels. And the New York State Board of Regents, rather than send up the red flag and saying this is a catastrophic disaster, we need to fix this, what they did was they redefined what basic proficiency means. They lowered the standard to meet what they're deeming is the new normal. So essentially, they don't have any faith that students can catch up and, and actually change uh, and this is where I talk about that's such a sellout. Right. Sorry, I'm going to cut in. That's such a sellout on those kids. I mean, they have a less uh, less of an opportunity in a future if we believe that education provides futures and changes lives. We re- if we really believe that, they've just been robbed. Well, not only have they been robbed, it's the decline of a nation. I mean, if you track the decline in education, that correlates with the decline of a nation. That's where we are. And for our country, it's actually much more important. Most people don't realize they think the education system was built for reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's not why the public education system was developed. The public education system was developed to connect us with one another. We are the most unique nation on the planet. We have many different people from many different places coming together and actually coexisting well together. What we don't have is 2,000 years of a shared history with each other. We don't have a shared common culture, shared customs, shared traditions, even shared languages. And so how do we bring this together and make it work? If you look at any other society around the world, any slight differences, take Afghanistan. You have 68 different tribes. You've got about 10 or 11 dominant tribes. And they've been at warfare with each other just because of slight variations in the culture. Here in the United States, we have all these different people, and yet we are able to coexist well together. Well, the reason is it's because the public education system initially was developed to instill 
this sense of nationhood, this, this idea of America, the idea of freedom and liberty, the adoption of fundamental concepts of how to be a good citizen within society. Discipline was injected into curriculums of how to behave properly, how to be productive within our society. And we've moved away from that. So we have less qualified people teaching in classrooms, and there's a lot of really good teachers out there, but the good teachers are inhibited by failed curriculums. And then we have bureaucrats that are running this education system, and the system has collapsed, and people are just waking up to it. You know, the only silver lining of COVID was the fact that people realized how bad the education system is, that it's not built on the concept of education anymore, that rather it's just to push political agendas. So so let me unpack a little bit of what you said. So first of all, I do believe education reform is coming. I mean, it, it must. And I think there's a lot of people, again, shout out to Moms for Liberty. They're out there pounding this. Uh and you know when when you have when you have the FBI calling parents at a school board meeting, God forbid they should actually show up and voice their concerns, being shut down and called uh, extremists. I mean, my God, you know we have we, the, everything is topsy turvy. The parents are trying to take control of this situation and they should. So what are your solutions? If you had a magic wand and you were in charge and you were secretary of education for this great country, what would you do, Nick? Well, I mean, there, there's a whole host of things. One of the things that, that I would do immediately is push for school choice and school choice. And this is Why? The Why school. does it matter? Because if parents can choose where their children go to school, and it's not just about pulling children out of public school and sending them to private school. They can live to a neighboring district that just has a better public school. If parents can choose to where they're going to send their children to school, well, then the education system, the public schools, will have to compete not only amongst each other, but they'll also have to compete with the private schools. They're going to have to up their level of education if they want students to remain in the classroom in those schools. Now, school choice, it it amazes me that so many Democrats in the far left are opposed to this idea because it's not like it helps the wealthy elite. The wealthy elite, they live in districts that are school districts that are fine. They're not having that many problems. It helps those that have been disenfranchised by living in these bad neighborhoods that have been controlled by Democrats for decades. It gives them an opportunity in these neighborhoods to achieve through education, which is the greatest mechanism to lift people out of poverty so school choice would definitely be one the second thing i would reintroduce an american curriculum yes education part of the education system we have to introduce this concept of america and what links us together the reason that we see so much division is because people don't understand how our government works why it was created the intent behind the founding fathers the reason every issue is becoming federalized today is because they don't understand the mechanisms of government and the system of federalism. I would also make sure that they could actually pass a citizenship exam. They understand the Constitution when they graduate. And after seeing all these protests that are going on, I would suggest that in order to get a high school diploma, you should have to spend three weeks in one of the most terrible countries in the world to see how the real world actually operates, how miserable and cruel it could be, 
And then maybe people will get an appreciation for the United States. I would also increase the standards. We're seeing this idea of equitable grading systems where everyone gets an A, right? It, it, it's easy because if everyone gets an A, nobody complains. And then people don't realize how bad the education system really is. It covers the students, the parents, the teachers. And you don't even have to hand in assignments and you'll still get credit for the work even if you didn't do it. Well, we need to do away with this idea of everyone gets an A. We need to stop with the great inflation. We need to actually increase the standards and recognize, yes, not every American is going to be an academic. Some are going to be better in the trades. Some are better with their hands. Everyone has different talents and abilities. And so we could actually gear people more towards careers where they'll be successful rather than go through an education system that doesn't really teach them anything. And, and then at the higher education level, I think we need to do away with every useless degree program that exists. I think students are being ripped off. If you got a degree in Caribbean studies, we'll say, uh, you should be able to sue that university for ripping you off. Even though you're dumb for actually getting a degree in Caribbean studies, well, universities shouldn't even be offering useless degree programs like that. Those small changes, which are actually very doable, will go a long way in our education system. I love it. I think that's a great roadmap to get us started. I want to go back uh, for a minute uh, to Congress. You said something about understanding the structures of government. And I, I, I learned myself over the last few years, really have been on an, a learning curve. And it's been exciting to understand more deeply and profoundly our Constitution and why it exists and so forth. But I'm struck by, to your point earlier, who who does really understand it. And then we have people like Tlaib right now flying the Palestinian flag in the halls of Congress while I'm taking us back to this Israel-Palestine conflict for a minute because I wanted to cover this. How on earth is she allowed to fly that flag in our halls of Congress. She doesn't work for them, or maybe she does, but what the heck? Thoughts? Well, well, there are no house rules that forbid it. Now, as someone that has been born and raised in America, I am someone that firmly believes that the American flag is the one that needs to be displayed uh, you know, anywhere and everywhere, particularly in the halls of Congress. I am someone who believes I, I, ha- I come from Italian descent. You will not see me waving an Italian flag because that's not my homeland. Okay. My ancestors may have came from there, but I am fully Americanized here in the United States. Uh, what Talib is doing, I, I think it's a disgrace. She's pushing misinformation, disinformation, and anti-Semitism. But in a free society, she does have the right to do that. And, and I will always defend people's freedoms over anything else, because that's the intent. It's easy to have freedom of speech when you agree with everything someone's saying. It's much more difficult to have freedom of speech when you have people that disagree with each other. But that's the point. That's what freedom of of speech protects. It it protects this disagreement. So I disagree with Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and AOC profoundly. But they have the right to do it, and it's up to their constituents. If this is who they want representing them, they have every right to put it there. And if they don't, they should vote her out of office, and I'm hoping they do. Okay, and on that note, we were just talking about the gentleman who came out and spoke
Alex Jones. Here he was doing this this uh, commentary on this on the school shooting, and he got slammed with the billions of dollars. So at what point? And and I don't know the details of the case, but it sounds to me like it was a freedom of speech issue. Because if you're an idiot, you say something doesn't mean that it's illegal. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and that is true. So the the jury found that Alex Jones harmed the, the Newtown family members that were killed in the shooting in Connecticut uh, uh, about a decade ago, a little bit over a decade. And Alex Jones has to pay, I don't know, $1 billion penalty because of that to these families, but it does raise concerns. I mean, you know, freedom of speech is freedom of speech. And, yes, you could engage in conspiracy theories. That has never been ruled illegal. Now, they, the court didn't say what Alex Jones did was a, a, some type of freedom of speech and he wasn't allowed to do it. The, the ruling was that he inflicted harm on these families, that, that he denigrated these families, that, that he attacked their, their credibility, that he slandered them, and that's where it comes into play. So it's a very high bar to actually sue someone for slander, but they were successful. Uh, is it right? Well, a jury of his peers did make this award. I disagree with the decision, but now that's on him. However, to me, it was a freedom of speech issue, and freedom of speech should trump all else. The the thing that makes us unique is we're the only country that actually really has freedom of speech. No other country does. In fact, in a lot of countries, including liberal democracies like Canada and Britain and France, the second you say something, the government could rule that you're incite, inciting others, and therefore they could arrest you and detain you. I believe it was Germany where you had a French comedian make fun of the president of Turkey, and yet he was arrested, charged, and convicted and had to go to prison for a few months because of that. So we should be upholding our ideals, not moving more towards the Euro- European style of freedom of speech. Yeah, I, I think I, I suspect that case with Alex Jones will go to the Supreme Court. Don't you? It's certainly going to get appealed all the way up there. Which way it goes, I don't know, but it will get to the Supreme Court sooner or later. Well, I, I, yeah, and to your point, it it's at what point does freedom of speech lose its weight? And you're saying it never does. It's in the Constitution. It's inculcated in our our structures and our and our society and as abhorrent as it may have been whatever he said you know to say you know if you say something to me that hurts my feelings is that a reason for you to lose your right for freedom of speech no you know what's that what's that word uh the saying rather that says that you know water off the duck's back just water off the duck's back. Let it slide. So, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We have with us today Nick Giordano, and I really appreciate you calling in from uh, from wherever you are, and we'll be right back. When was the last time you had freshly made ice cream or candy? Sweeties on the Creek offers a wide selection of fresh, creamy ice cream made with natural flavors. Stop in for a new fun flavor or a classic yummy favorite perched on a freshly made waffle cone. Just in, Sweeties has a huge assortment of candy, including freshly made in-store delicious chocolates. Your young ones will love all the plush toys and fun gifts, too. Sweeties on the Creek, just up from Market Street. We're scooping now. 
Welcome back. This is Jen, and I have with me today Nick Giordano. And Nick, I you know, was wanted to cover with you, you mentioned it a little bit, the southern border. What is your thought about our sovereignty, where we stand? Because I'm really at the point where we all know it's a disaster. We know who's responsible. We know who's done this to us. If you vote for them again, you're an idiot. But now what? Where I am is what's next? How do we save this? Because we have, in some reports I've gotten, over 10,000 CCP military uh, special forces have come in through our southern border. You're telling me four Iranian terrorists on the watch list are were caught coming in. What do we do to recover our country? Well, I was going to say, I didn't even know we had a southern border at this point. Right? It doesn't look like we do. Apparently. Uh, and yeah, it, it is a catastrophic disaster on the southern border. When, when we look at the southern border, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson under the Obama administration said that if 1,000 people are going uh, crossing over a day, that that overwhelms the system. Now we have anywhere from 5,000 to 9,000 coming in. And just think about the magnitude of that on a daily basis. Our border agents are no longer border agents. They're processing agents. They're simply there to process all these people coming in. And the frightening aspect is that we caught 284 people last fiscal year alone that were on the terrorist watch list. The question is, how many didn't we catch? How many were able to infiltrate our society? And when we look at the entirety of the border and the border crisis, it's an abdication of the federal government and what they have done, particularly the Biden administration. Our asylum laws are being made a mockery of. Economics is not a reason to request asylum. You are allowed to request asylum if you face threats of political violence or political opposition being targeted, domestic violence, or you're being targeted by a cartel. Those are the reasons for asylum. Now, you're going to be persecuted for religious beliefs. Those are the reasons. Not because you want to make a better life for yourself. If you want to make a better life for yourself, you're supposed to use the legal mechanisms to come into this country. Now, we could reform the legal system because I do think it's too slow. It takes way too much time, and all it does is make the immigration lawyers really wealthy. But when we look at our border right now, the illegal immigration that's taking place, it is a catastrophic disaster, and we need to shut the border down. The, the amount of terrorists coming through, the amount of drugs coming through, the cartel coming through— uh, th- this is something that's a big problem, but it's not just uh, about the cartels and the drugs and the, the, the criminal activity that's taking place. It's we can't absorb all these people. That That's the thing. You know, it looks like geographically that the United States is a huge place. But when you take a couple million from place A and put them in place B, we have to look at can the infrastructure support that? Can our power grids sustain the the increased demand on electricity? Can our plumbing supplies and and our sewage handle increased capacity? Do the grocery stores have enough food on their shelves? And and that's what people don't realize. It's a really complex issue. They think, you know, New York City, you have 8 million residents. So what's another 125,000? Well, we're seeing the results. We're we're seeing that we can't sustain it here in New York State. And it, it is a complete failure across the board. But more importantly, 
the amount coming over destroys the assimilation process, and that's the biggest danger. Because it used to be the reason that we've been so successful when it comes to immigration in the United States and all these different peoples from different places is because they come here and then they begin to get Americanized. They learn American values, American customs. And as they become Americanized, their loyalty begins to shift from their native countries to the United States. When you have this overwhelming onslaught coming through, you don't have time for an assimilation process. You, people aren't going to learn the language. They're going to go into these enclaves with the same peoples, and they won't gain a value and appreciation for the United States. That's why France and, and Britain and all these other countries have such a problem with immigration. They don't have an assimilation process. Well, we do. And let me cut in that they have these no-go zones, so even the police won't go in and police. So, you know— well, the- micro-nations within a country— Right. And that's what you end up creating. But here it's even worse because not only are they not getting through the assimilation process, the, the students are going through an education system and they're getting this anti-American sentiment that's being taught that America is such a horrible country, a racist country, an evil country that was founded in sin. So imagine you travel all the, these miles, this dangerous journey you take to get to a country only for our representatives in our country telling you that you came to a horrible country. How is that going to create loyalty to, towards the United States? I don't see it. Well, it's it's so sad. And truthfully, I, I've been a big believer, and I've said this probably 20 years now, um, we need to empower the peoples in these countries that are coming here to make their country great. Because you know, I've been to Belize. I've been to Costa Rica. Lovely places. Uh, I haven't been to El Salvador, but I, I hear it's got some nice places there. The point being that if their countries were great, they wouldn't be dying to come in here and then uh, bring a lot of the mayhem in the gangs and some of the things that have come in from El Salvador and so forth. I want to read something to everybody because it's important for us to remember something. Uh, The oath of office for the president of the United States, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, this is directly from, by the way, constitution.congress.gov. So you can go there and you can study the Constitution, but do get informed and delve into these different areas. What strikes me on that is, and it doesn't say protect us against foreign and domestic, first of all. I'm surprised that wasn't in there. And then two, when you look at the Constitution, has this person, Biden violated his oath of office. I mean, it says to the best of his ability, and he doesn't have much. So maybe he has not violated his oath of office. We're at the top of the hour, but I I want everybody to ponder that. Like, if he's violated his oath of office, he's got to go. Nick, you have got about 30 seconds to respond. What are your thoughts on that? I'll say that it's not just Biden. There are a number of politicians who have completely disregarded the Constitution, haven't lived up to their oath. Uh, and we saw it throughout coronavirus. We're seeing it on a daily basis. We see it with the mass government apparatus that's been built. So uh, until we elect officials that actually want to represent the United States in the Constitution, 
uh, the situation is not going to change all that much. Beautifully said. It's time for people to be held to account to do what they've been asked to do and hired to do and, frankly, paid to do. And uh, stop putting their personal interests first. And it's time to become America first. Everybody, you've been listening to The Jen Charlton Show. I have with me today Nick Giordano. Nick, thank you so much for being with us. How can people follow you? Everyone could go to PASReport.com or they could use at PASReport on any of the social media channels. They can find me there. Wonderful. All right, everybody, make sure you get out tomorrow to the Rally for Israel, 2 p.m. at Baker Park at Fleming Avenue. Also today, Newt Gingrich out in Washington County, 1 to 3. And I'll be in Harrisburg today doing a health and freedom conference with Senator Doug Mastriano in Harrisburg. Join us there. Have a great week.